I wonder if you had a list, all of the things that you have started, but they're not finished, how many pieces of A4 paper you would need? I wonder. I think back over my life, and there have been countless things that I've started, maybe things that I've promised myself and promised others that I will keep up, but only to find there comes a time, usually not far into that promise, where I've let things lapse or, or given up. Am I the only one who does that? I don't, I don't think so. Let me give you some examples. We got our car is 10 years old, and we bought it. We were fortunate to be able to buy it new 10 years ago, and I paid a little bit extra to have this special something put on it that it would always have that showroom shine. Ten years later, it does not have a showroom shine. Uh, the kids were really little when we got the car, and uh, I was convinced that they weren't going to have Cheerios and snacks in the car. And if ever they dropped something, we would pick it up immediately. Well, that lasted about, I don't know, a day or something like that. There's only so many times you can crawl under a, a, a car seat to pick up Cheerios, isn't it? And then I was, gonna, I was always going to wash it once a week. I think I did four once a week washing, so that lasted a month, and the pockets became full of rubbish. So I I promised myself I was going to do this, and then I gave up fairly quickly. There are many times when my wife and I have said to us, right, that's it, we're not using the floor or the chair in our bedroom as the wardrobe. We're, 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 we're going to put those clothes away every single night. And 18 years later, we're still saying that to each other. I say to myself, that's it. I'm only going to eat chocolate and crisps. I promise myself, chocolate and crisps only on a weekend. And then things like Holiday Bible Club happen. And you just need chocolate on a Monday evening when you get home. You know, you have to do that. And recently... For Father's Day, my wife and the kids uh, got me a new pair of slippers. I know I am so rock and roll. Um, All you youngsters, it will come. Trust me, it will come. You can't beat a good pair of slippers. And I promised myself that I'm not going to wear them in the garden. They've got such a good soul, these slippers have. Two days later, I'm sat in the garden wearing my slippers. And Jem said, I thought you weren't going to wear them. in Well, they're so comfortable, aren't they? I'm sure you can all recall instances and situations where where you've started off with the best intentions. You're you're making a fresh start, and yet very soon you've descended into your old ways. In one sense, you've negotiated with yourself, and you've ended up compromising. And I say all of that because today we're, we're finishing our series on Nehemiah. And, and actually this is where we find the people, they've, they've gone back on all of their promises to live lives in the way Nehemiah had helped them rebuild. And, and the reason for that is because as human beings we, we can find it so much easier to make these big promises, to, to start well. We find it easier to do that than we do to keep those promises going. For when we stop being intentional, we find we go back to our old ways. That's why most New Year's resolutions fail. Did you know that the second Friday in January is known as Quitter's Day? (laughs) It is, it's true. 
The second Friday in January is known as Quitter's Day. That's, that's not very long into the new year because that is the Friday when most people give up on their New Year's resolutions and go back to their old ways. And while we can talk about all the things that, that we've started but not lasted, without intentionality, if, if, if we're not careful, that can become the story of our faith, the story of our, of our walk with Jesus. And in the final pages of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah working hard to instill in the people and therefore in us a faith without compromise. For friends, we can be people of very good intentions. People who are convinced that that we're going to get it right this time. And yet the truth is for many, if not all of us, we can end up compromising on the very thing that we said we're not going to do. Now we're not going to read a big chunk of the verses for today. We'll we'll come to a few verses towards the end of the sermon. But I would encourage you to, to, to on your own to read Nehemiah 12, 44 to the end of the book in chapter 30. Because if you read that, you will see how the book of Nehemiah ends. It would be lovely if I could say to you that the book of Nehemiah ended on a wonderful high. And they all rode off into the sunset and their faith never wavered again. But that is not how the book ends. And friends, I don't know about you, but... While I find it sad how quickly the people forgot all about all that Nehemiah has shown them. While I find it sad that all the wonderful promises they've made, they've broken. While I find it sad how they've gone from owning their sin and the sin of their ancestors to committing even greater sins. I do find it strangely encouraging that they got it so monumentally wrong. Why? Because if they got it so wrong, then I don't feel so out of place when I get it so wrong as well. Now, I appreciate that's a strange thing to say in the sermon, so I need to put some context and understanding to this. I'm not saying, oh, because they got it so wrong, it doesn't matter if I get it wrong, so I can just give up and not try. No, it it does matter when I get it wrong, and I need to keep coming back to Jesus over and over again. I need to own my own wrongdoing, my own sins, and repent, and to seek to put them behind me with the power of God. Also, because they got it so wrong, it doesn't mean I have to accept I'm always going to get it wrong, and I'm never going to be okay. That I'm doomed to fall and fail in my relationship with God. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe it's God's plan that I will fail in my relationship with him. I'm encouraged because in Nehemiah, when I see the people going back to their old ways and some even worse old ways, even though he's angry, Nehemiah and therefore God does not give up on them. And the encouragement is that I need to be committed to living a life of faith without compromising without accepting my failing as a foregone conclusion. Yet because I saw the people fail and how they failed, I've got some tools in scripture to help me try to not to fall into the same pattern that they did. Let me give you an example of what I'm trying to say. It's a a well-known fact, sadly, in in much of our church, especially in the UK, that, that young people will get to a certain age and more often than not, they walk away from God. 
And we kind of just, in the UK, just we can kind of just accept that as that's just the norm. Here's the thing, while that does happen, I don't believe God wants that to be the norm for any of us in any way, shape or form. At all. And we need to, to sort of change the narrative on that. And if our kids have walked away uh, from, from God, we need to pray that they'll come back. And not just accept that, well, they, they'll come back later on in life, because that's what often happens. While it does happen, we shouldn't accept the fact that that's the fate accompli, that that is how it's going to be. We have to say, okay, God, that's what has happened, but I'm going to pray hard and, and pray against that, because it's a lie of the enemy that young people get to a certain age and always walk away from church. I don't believe that that, that needs to be. And, you know, so if you're a, but also if you're a parent and your kids have walked away from church, this isn't to try and make you feel bad, but to try and say to you, don't accept that that's how it has to be. Pray, pray, pray into that. Share your faith with them. Keep going because God will bring them back. And also, if you're a, a, a parent and your kids are little and they're loving coming to church, I loved the enthusiasm of the kids in the Holiday Bible Club. It was exhausting, but it was inspirational as well. Right now, start praying that when your children get to, to 13, 14, 15, 16, that they will not walk away from God. Don't allow the lie of the enemy to convince you that is how it's going to be. And if you're here and you're one of the young people and your mates have walked away from God, don't think, well, that's what I've got to do. Friends, it's not a rite of passage that you walk away from Jesus. It's a lie of the enemy that you walk away and come back later in life. So start praying against that. And so what I'm trying to say is, while that happens, so when it does happen, we don't have to feel like we're somehow not, not human, not normal. We are, but don't allow it to be. That is exact, that, that's going to have to be what happens. Compromising our faith and going back to what we know even when it's not right for us, is a very human thing to do. Look at the disciples, especially Peter, when confronted with the reality, he denies Jesus, even though he promised he wouldn't. And then after Jesus' death, he leads the way and goes back to fishing, back to what he did before. There are many instances in the Bible about people compromising on their faith. It's the pattern of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Paul, in many of his letters, is addressing some of the compromises that people are engaging. We'll we'll come around the communion table shortly. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is challenging the people because they were abusing the communion table. They were using it as a time to gorge themselves and, and to drink too much alcohol. And he's saying, no, don't compromise your faith. Come back to Jesus. Later on, Paul says to the Philippians, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. He says this, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life, then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. That is living life of faith without compromise. In Romans 12, we read about not falling into what the world says is the norm. In other words, not compromising on the truth that God says to us. In Revelation chapter 3, in John's vision, we see Jesus saying, but since you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. 
This vision was to the church in Laodicea, who was described as a lukewarm and an uncommitted church, a, a, a church uh, that had faith with compromise. We can go on and go on and go on. It's not easy listening, but the truth is this. Yes, through Jesus, God forgives us our sins when we truly repent, and he will forgive them again and again. But that is not the standard. Because God forgives, this doesn't mean we don't try to live lives of faith without compromising. God wants people who are committed in their faith. He wants churches that don't compromise, don't water down the gospel. We're not to make the message palatable and easy to swallow, but rather we're to make the gospel, even with its high demands, worth it. We're to be different from the world. And that is what Nehemiah was saying to his people. So I'm encouraged that the people fail because I can relate to that. Because we all fail. But let's not allow that to become the norm. Let's not seek to say, it's okay, we'll always fail. But seek to change that narrative, to to flip the script and say, God, I, I don't want this failure. I want a different life. I want a faith without compromise. So where are we at in this chapter? Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall and he's been in the process of rebuilding the people. He's, he's done this by putting the word of God back in its rightful place. You remember they, they've stood for, for hours and hours and hours in awe of God's word. He's led the people to name and own their sins and the sins of their ancestors, to not settle with the sin and to feel uncomfortable by the sin. Then he's led them to sacrificial commitment in all areas of life, work, family, finances, everything. Nehemiah has shown the people what true worship is, and he's shown them how to order their lives so that the glory is given to God. They've got the Levites and and, and the the, the choirs, and they're, they're leading people into God's presence. And then Nehemiah thinking that, okay, the work's complete. He he now goes back to King Artaxerxes. He's promised that he'll go back. He wasn't planning on staying here forever, and so he, go, he, he, he go, fulfills that promise to the king. Remember, the king allowed him to come and rebuild the wall and then rebuild the people. And so Nehemiah goes back. Now, we don't know how long he's with the king. It was probably a year or two. And after that period, he returns to Jerusalem. Can you imagine him coming back? I wonder how they're all doing now. And he returns, and he sees that things are not good. Do you remember what it was like when the teacher went out of the classroom? <laughs> Do you remember that? It's wonderful, wasn't it? Great. Amazing. You, you're doing it, and the teacher goes, I just need to nip out for a minute. Nobody turned around and said, oh, that's a shame. I was enjoying quadratic equations. The teacher nips out for a minute, and it's carnage in the classroom. And your mate stands up and for some reason starts hitting you. And papers get scrunched up and ball and throws across the room. And a pen hits you in the back. And the teacher's gone out and there's carnage in the classroom. And then the teacher comes back in and you all sit there quietly. As if I don't know how all these things happen to end up on the floor. Who turned that table over? It wasn't me. It's a bit like that. Nehemiah, in one sense, has gone out of the classroom. He's gone back to the king to fulfill his duties. He comes back, and what he finds is not people living a life of faith. It's not people who have not just had their lives rebuilt on God, but they've re-continued to build them on God. What he finds is complete, and that's a carnage. He returns, and everything that he has built into the lives of people have been thrown out, gone back, 
or it's been changed completely. Many years ago in one of my churches, I won't say which one in case somebody somehow watches this, but in one of my churches, uh, we had somebody come to do some training on the, the PA, on the tech side of things. It happened to be a friend of mine who uh, has worked in that kind of field for many years, and he's worked in BBC for the BBC for, for donkey's years, over 30 years. And he came, and uh, he was training some guys on how to do the PA. They were doing the PA, but they weren't getting the best out of it. So he came, and he spent a whole Saturday. We had the worship group there. He spent the whole Saturday showing them. He changed all the knobs to get the best sound out of it. And, and it sounded amazing. And on the Sunday, then my, my mate, he, he ran the PA. He ran the deck. And he said to them, you need to realize that this is your instrument. And so you need to be in tune with what's happening on the stage. And so we had a great worship band, and he would pick out the person who's playing the flute, and then one of the singers, and it all sounded. And everybody said afterwards, wow, worship was amazing today. The way that he, he made that, that sound desk sing. And it sounded fantastic. And it was just amazing. And it was wonderful. My mate goes off back to Wales. And one of the guys who did the sound tech, did the sound, that evening, he came back and he opened the manual and he put every knob back to how it was before. He said, because that's what the manual says. He didn't understand that things had been changed had been built on for the better. Because the manual was, was all set in a sterile environment and, and each venue that you go into is different. The acoustics are different. So you have to change things. We'd had this whole Saturday and a Sunday and it sounded amazing. The minute my mate went out of the classroom, he changed everything back. And it just sounded a bit flat and dull from then on. It's a bit like that. Nehemiah has come and he's done a wonderful job. Rebuilt the wall in 52 days. Led, he's had rebuilt the people that they're in a great place. People of faith. It all sounded wonderful. And the minute his back was turned, he, they had put things back to how it was in life before Nehemiah came. Only this time they put it back and it was worse. You know, what was going on here is the same as what was going on with the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, as partners, as God's partners, we beg you, we beg you, we implore you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. Not to accept it, then to just go back how you were before. In, in Parable Farm of the Holiday Bible Club, one of the, the parables we looked at was the parable of the sower. And how we need to be, have hearts that are like good soil, that we receive God's word and we, we do what it says and we put it in, into practice and we live lives of faith. But, you know, sometimes we can be like the rocky or the thorny soil. We, we grow for a while, but then that's it. Our roots haven't gone down or we grow, but we allow the things of the world to choke us. The people who Nehemiah returns to have been choked. They've been choked in their faith. So where had the people compromised their faith? One of the things that Nehemiah had got the people to do was to make tithes, to make contributions. And these were stored in a chamber in the temple so that they had all that they needed to do what God called them to do. And they had made somebody called Eliashib. He was put in charge of all of that. 
Eliashib then, when Nehemiah's back is turned and he's gone, he allows a guy called Tobiah to have residence in the temple of God. Now, why is that such a bad thing? Let me read you uh, from Eric Mason's book on uh, Nehemiah about Tobiah. These are all references from the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 2, Tobiah sought his personal welfare, not that of the people of God. In chapters 2 and 4, he he challenged the value of God's work in Jerusalem. In chapter 4, he was angry because the development of Jerusalem was destroying his, Tobiah's, influence. In chapter 6, he made plans to destroy Nehemiah. In chapter 6, he resented Nehemiah for not acknowledging his and Sambalat's self-perceived importance. He also tried to persuade Nehemiah to abandon the work of God, to tend to his personal selfish desires instead. In chapter 6, Tobiah tried to undermine Nehemiah's leadership and the credibility of the work of God by attempting to build a false case against his motives. He then used Shemaiah's false theology to try and get Nehemiah and, and give him a bad name. This guy has been an absolute nightmare. This guy has been somebody, he's been like somebody nipping at the heels of Nehemiah and all that God wants to do all the way through the book of Nehemiah. And this guy, Tobiah, who's been actively working against God and against the people of God, doesn't recognize what God has been doing. They allow him to come, and not just come in, but but to live in the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was where God dwelt. It's where God lived. And they had basically evicted God and given his home to Tobiah, who was against God and the Jewish people. This is awful. And we need to see who or what are the Tobias in our lives. Eric Mason describes Tobias as a leech. Something or someone who, who just sucks the life, sucks the faith out of you. Nehemiah comes back and sees that their lives are out of order. So the first thing he does is get rid of the leech. He throws the Tobias out. He throws the one thing that is sucking the faith out of them. Friends, this is about what and who we allow to influence us. We need to be careful not to allow people who want to disrupt God's work from influencing us. Who are you influenced by? I've said it before, and it's a great phrase. I don't know who coined it, and it applies here. So what the people have done, when they allowed, they isolated themselves from God. And you see, when we isolate ourselves from God, the devil can influence us. And that's what's happened. They've, allowed, they've isolated themselves from God. They've gone back and all that Nehemiah said. And the devil who has influenced them, he's come and set up residence right in the place where they should be worshipping God. There may be things in our church that we must not accept. But there are things in our lives that we must not accept either that lead us away from God. And Nehemiah sees that. And that's the first, he gets so angry. Can you imagine Tobiah coming home, as far as he's concerned, to see all of his stuff just thrown out, strewn everywhere? Things have changed, Tobiah, and you're out, and God is in. You see, the people, there was no compromise. You can't, you can't entertain, oh, well, maybe we'll just give them the back room. Maybe we'll just give them a small cupboard. No, they've got to go. There's no compromise in here. If there is something that is not of God and is influencing your life, you've got to get rid of it. 
Don't, don't, don't entertain a little bit part of it. Completely get rid of it. The people had fallen into all sorts of trouble when Nehemiah had been out of the classroom. But it wasn't just allowing Tobiah to move in and set up home. That's the first thing. The second thing was there had been a promise of tithes. We can get a bit uncomfortable when we talk about tithes in the UK for we're talking about money and possessions and things. And I would say if you're uncomfortable when, when a preacher starts to talk about money, ask yourself, why is that? Jesus talks an awful lot about money, so why we shouldn't be afraid of talking about it. Now, the situation was that Nehemiah had set up a tithing system where, 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 where people could give grain and, and oil and wine, etc. So those who were, were serving, like the Levites and the choirs, they didn't then have to work. That, that all their needs were provided for so that they could teach the people about God, that they could lead people in worship. But when people had stopped giving their tithes, they, they negated on that, they compromised on that. The people who were, were teaching, the Levites and, and the choirs, they needed to be able to get some, some food to eat. They needed to be able to live. And because there's no tithes, what happened is they start going out. They have to leave what they're doing. They have to leave their acts of service and go out and, and earn a living. And the problem with that, you see, is that is that the, the people then weren't being taught about God. The word of God isn't being opened because the Levites have had to leave that and go and work to be able to eat. And not only that, the, they're not entering into atmospheres, into times of worship because the choirs aren't there to lead them into worship. And the problem with that is, you see, worship motivates service so that when the people stop worshipping, everything else starts to fall into disrepute. Everything else starts to fall away and be compromised because people can't be bothered anymore. And also because the, the Levites aren't teaching them the word of God, people aren't growing in their faith. So when people stop giving their tithes, awful things happen. And it's the same in church life in 2023. If we stop giving our tithes, this place can't operate. You know, all the, all the stuff that we do, we, God calls us to give to him, of, of what he has blessed and given us with. What is it the, the, the preacher once said? The great news is God has given us absolutely everything we knew, need to do to accomplish all of his will. The problem is it's in your bank accounts. And it's in your wallets and it's in your purses. God calls us. He, he invites us. Don't see it as a chore. God invites us to give to his work. That is a massive privilege. The next thing that they'd stopped doing was keeping the Sabbath. And instead of keeping the Sabbath, people were, were allowing the merchants to come in and do trade. And Nehemiah is fuming. There's steam coming out of his ears. Why? Because keeping the Sabbath, friends, at its heart is about trusting God. If we're unwilling to stop working and rest, we're saying to God, I'm sorry, but I don't fully, fully trust you to keep doing what I'm doing. Friends, I, I've seen this so much in ministry, where people refuse to take a day off, refuse to take their holidays, refuse to take retreats or sabbaticals. And they couch it up in, I just don't want to be away from the church. I don't believe that for a second. When we're not willing to take a Sabbath, a true rest, we're saying that we don't trust God that we don't trust the people that we're serving with to keep it going. 
Remember when somebody once said to somebody who wasn't willing to take a rest, just going back a number of years, I might have said it here before, but if you're not willing to take a rest, who do you think you are, Barack Obama? Why are you you're building yourself up to have this air of self-importance that if I'm not there, if I'm not doing it, if I'm not, if I'm not serving, if I'm not the one leading that, it's all going to fall apart. Do we trust God or don't we trust God? If God threw the, the, the stars into space, if God created every single thing, do we not think that God can keep things happening if we're not there for a day? You know, we need to, the, when we don't keep a Sabbath, when we don't take a true rest, we're saying, God, I, I don't fully trust you. We're compromising our faith. The next one was sons and daughters marrying unbelievers. And the problem with this is that they are marrying people of other pagan religions and languages. And when that happened, what then happened was that their children spoke another language to the point where they couldn't understand the scriptures. And I want to be sensitive here because this is a tough one in our modern age. And I know there are those of you who are married to people who are not Christians. And there are those whose children have married people who are not Christians. And I do not believe God then wants you to step away from that marriage because God loves and values marriages. Hear what I'm not saying. Because I also think that what Nehemiah is talking about here is far different to a Christian marrying a non-Christian. Nehemiah is talking about when the believer is so influenced by the non-believer that they end up taking on the language of the non-believer. In other words, they're they're taking on their belief and understanding of the world. They've gone from speaking the language of God to speaking the language of pagans. For all of us, there are things where we have to be careful not to compromise our faith. That is in our marriages, whether that's between a Christian and a non-Christian, or whether that's between two Christians. I have seen two Christian people who, who love Jesus, supposedly, who are, who are walking together, one of them gets the idea that they want to walk away from church. And they influence each other. And they egg each other on to the point where they're now neither of them are walking with Jesus. You see, this is not just about a Christian marrying a non-Christian. This is about when we're people of faith, not allowing those people that we are yoked to, to have um, a, a non-godly influence upon us. So that we walk away and we speak a language that is not of God. And all of what Nehemiah is talking about in his closing words shows that his greatest fear is that the people turn away from God. That's what we need to take away from this. That his greatest fear as he comes to the end is that, he's, is that people, he just does not want people to walk away from God. And he comes back after a year or two and he sees firsthand what happens when people compromise their faith and over time they've turned away from God. I said we haven't read a big chunk, but as we're coming towards the close, I want to read a few verses, four verses from Nehemiah. You see, if you read these chapters towards the end of Nehemiah, they're punctuated, there's four little punctuations where Nehemiah expresses something to God. That's in verses 14, 22, 29, and 31. And he says this. Remember this good deed, O my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its service. Remember this good deed also. O my God, have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. 
Remember them, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites. And finally, he says, remember this in my favor, O my God. You see, friends, these four verses that are punctuated throughout the end of this book help us understand what we are to do. For you see, in these verses, I don't believe we see Nehemiah trying to distance himself from the people, but what we see instead is his heart. For God is the only one that Nehemiah wants to please. And he's trying to instill on all of those people that God needs to be the only one that they need to please. And in our lives, we too need to ask ourselves, is God truly the only one we want to please, or do we compromise in our relationship with him? It's tough going, isn't it? It's really hard. I'd love to have finished with a nice, jolly, upbeat kind of sermon as we come to the end of Nehemiah, but I can't change scripture. This is not a lovely, uplifting end to the book of Nehemiah. Yes, it's encouraging for if we face times of struggle and wandering in our faith, it's good to know that we're not the only ones, but it's also an ending of challenge. To not accept the inevitable of walking away from God and compromising our faith, and to work out our salvation So we have a living, acting faith. That's what Paul means when he speaks to the Philippians in chapter 2 about working out your salvation. In any relationship, it does not just happen. You have to work it out. Whether that's a, a relationship of a parent, a child, of a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, or a son or daughter of the living God. You've got to work out your salvation. Your salvation is free, but then you need to keep working at it. And when you can see that you're kind of, your heart's not on fire, the passion's gone, you're starting to compromise your faith, you need to look at what Nehemiah said. Are we struggling with some of these things? To put the things right in our lives. You see, the wall that had been rebuilt, instead of offering a place of refuge, had become a place of entrapment for all the compromise that people were making in their walk with God. And Nehemiah comes back and they're trapped because they've compromised their faith. You know, years ago I heard, I used to go every now and again up to uh, Twickenham to watch the, the Premiership doubleheader at the start of the season with my brother-in-law. And as you walk in, if you've been to Twickenham, as you're walking from the train station to Twickenham, there's lots of houses and, and, and there's cars parked everywhere. And the story goes of one guy, it's a true story, that he, was, he got really cheesed off. He was a builder. And somebody who was driving up to Twickenham thought, oh, it's all right, there's nobody on this guy's drive, I'm just going to park on his drive. So he just parked on this builder's drive. Thought, that's okay. So the builder comes out, he thought, okay. So he builds a three-brick wall on, on his driveway. So the guy comes back after the match, goes to get in his car, and I can't get my car out, I'm trapped. And he knocks on the door, he has to confront the builder, and the builder says, well, he parked on my drive. He said, you need to knock the wall down. He says, my wall. He said, my wall is my driveway. He said, you compromised. You, you parked somewhere where you, you shouldn't have parked. And now your compromise has trapped you. You see, walls can be a great thing. But, but if we're not careful, those walls can close in on us because we're not walking the life of faith that we should be walking. The things that Nehemiah confronted can be like warning signs to us so that when we see them, we can be intentional not to go down that route so that 
the closing verses are a guide so we don't fall into the same struggles. Or when we see them coming, we intentionally remove them or seek to put correct safeguards in place so that these things that can cause us to compromise our faith don't get any airtime in our lives. I don't know about you, but I got to the end of Nehemiah and it's a bit like reading a book or a film that's been quite harrowing. I feel a bit done in, to be honest with you. But I do want to bring some hope as we close. Because while it's not an uplifting story, and it's an ending that's challenging to say the least, for me, the hope is seen in the truth that this wonderful book of Nehemiah is actually in the Bible in the first place. We can ask ourselves why out of all the writings that could have made it, this one is there. And I think God wanted it there because it's a warning, but it's also an encouragement. For it shows me that while, yes, the people went back on their old ways, Nehemiah came back and helped them get back on track. You see, that is what God does for us. His heart is that we have a faith without compromise, but he knows in our human weakness we will make many mistakes. Maybe you're listening or watching this sermon and you're thinking of all the mistakes that you have made, all of the mistakes that you carry on making even today. I want you to be encouraged that God does not turn you away. I want you to know that there is restoration for you because of Jesus. God sent Jesus because all of us could be like the people Nehemiah was leading. And friends, that can give wonderful hope. For while we may compromise on our faith, God, God will never, ever compromise his love for us and his willingness and ability to forgive and restore our lives. Let me say that again, because I think some of you have fallen asleep. For while we may compromise our faith, God will never, ever compromise his love for us and his willingness and ability to forgive and restore our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's right, friends, that we question ourselves in the areas that's going on in our life by asking, do we hold back? Are we faithful in all things? Do we contribute in church life? Are there things in life that are out of order? Are we passionate about God? But after reading, the encouragement is to move forward in our faith that we don't allow the walls of our faith to fall into disrepair again. And we do that by taking intentional stock of our walk with Jesus and then re-establishing God's order where we need to. Class, the worship to come back up. And while that's true for us as individuals, it's true for us as God's church. Friends, for the hope and encouragement is that God has put this book front and center to help us. He acknowledges that we we don't always find it easy and we get it wrong. But this book offers us tools that God is willing to work with us to get our lives back on track. We need to be like a Nehemiah. We need to work hard at the things that are out out of whack in our lives, that are not where God wants us to be but make a commitment, make an intentional stand that we will do all we can with the power of God to not compromise on our faith, not compromise on our walk with God, even when everything around us is trying to pull us away, that we will not compromise. And friends, when we do, and if we do, we realize that God is still there, that we can come back to God 
And he will never, ever stop giving up on us. That's the wonderful thing. We heard that in Holiday Bible Club. God will run after us. God will chase after us because he is so, his heart is so for you. His heart is so for his church. There's no plan B. He sent Jesus because he knows we don't get it right. But we have to acknowledge that and acknowledge where we don't get it right to not compromise, to not give up and to keep coming back to God. Let's just pray together. Father, this has not been a a fluffy, a, a happy ever after ending. It's not been a, a happy ever after sermon. There's some hard-hitting truths in this, these final uh, words in Nehemiah. But they're words that you want us to hear. And Father, I just pray that your spirit will speak to our hearts and minds. Your spirit will just challenge us. Your spirit will just comfort. Your spirit will, will lead us in the way that we need to go. And that we will have hearts of, God, I just want to be right with you. I don't want to compromise my faith. Forgive me when I've compromised my faith. I just want to know of your greatness. I just want your love. I just want your your, your direction, your passion for me. I just want your, your heart for me to be everything that I am. That walking with you is as natural as breathing. Father, renew in me, renew in us a sense of wonder at how great you truly are. And then because of that, walking away from you would be the last thing we want to do. Help us, we pray. Amen.